Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by self-described music obsessive and journalist Tom Gaddy. He's the editor of a new music anthology called Long Players. And in conversation with acclaimed novelist David Mitchell and writer and activist Preti Tanasia, they discuss how our favourite albums become our most faithful companions and the soundtracks to our lives. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Long Players in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here, and thank you for joining us on this Monday night. Uh, I've, 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 I've elbowed the, um, my way to the front of uh, the three of us initially, just because uh, I've been deputised to ask the deputy editor of the New Statesman, Tom here, um, about the genesis of the book. Uh, all books need a creation myth, mate. And so what is the creation myth of long players? Well, David, it, um, it, it charts back to... The I was going to say the heady days, but actually quite quite gloomy days of 2016, when for a Christmas issue of the New Statesman, we put we we were thinking of some nice cheery things that we could put in this special Christmas issue of the magazine, and we decided to ask a bunch of writers to write about um, television shows, box sets that they that they loved. Um, so Roddy Doyle wrote about The Wire. Rose Tremaine wrote about Brideshead Revisited. Uh, Stephen King wrote about The Good Wife. Anyway, this was this was a big hit. The pieces were really good fun. And then so when next year rolled around, we said, you know, never afraid of just simply repeating a formula. Let's do that again, but a bit different. And we lit upon albums and just decided to tweak it a little bit. So deepen it a bit, I suppose, to ask people not just what their favourite album was or what they thought was the best record of all time, but to write about an album that was or is important to them or was at a particular time in their life, um, one that uh, shaped them or, or changed them in some way. And usually these, you know, I spend my life, basically most of my job is trying to get writers to stop doing the important thing that they should be doing and instead do something infinitely more frivolous for me. And I have mixed mixed success with that. And sometimes it can be a bit like pulling teeth. But this was just really noticeable. As soon as I sent out the emails, it was almost, you know, that thing of, it was almost like kids sort of straining forward in their desk with their, with their hands up, wanting to get the teacher's attention. People were just really, really up for it. They they loved the idea. The responses were just instant and enthusiastic. And as the pieces started coming in, it just made me ha- realise how rich this territory was, how close albums are to people heart, people's hearts. You know, they're so entangled in their sense of self in a way that a TV show or a film or or, or even a novel perhaps isn't. And I think that's a combination of music's immediacy, but also the fact that you, 
you know the the records that you really love you come back to them again and again and again hundreds hundreds of times over in a way that you don't always with those other art forms so the 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 pieces that came in really a lot of them showed how for these writers these records unlocked something they help people work out who they were or they open doors to to paths that they could pursue so we have obviously we've got david and preeti's um entries your guys which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute but um you know we have sort of deborah levy in her bedroom in west finchley uh with david bowie showing her the possibility of life beyond suburbia we've got marlon james going through a sort of crisis of religious faith and also trying to come to terms with his own sexuality and Björk's album post sort of unlocking something there and, and showing him that it's okay to kind of live with uncertainty. Then you've got kind of Will Self in the 1980s strung out on a variety of illegal and prescription drugs mesmerised by Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. You've got Sabrina Mufuz in Ibiza getting educated in in feminism by Ms. Dynamite. And um, you've got George Saunders. And this is a theme that, you know, given the the people that I I chose to contribute to this, you know, a lot of these records also really directly shaped people's creative decisions or enabled their creative awakening. So, you know, one of the key lines in the book, I think, is is George Saunders writing about the prog rock band, Yes. and, And he says... Uh, a window was thrown open in my mind to make something beautiful might mean to make something even you the artist doesn't understand don't understand so it was just full of riches and after that featured run I had a lot of great response to it and writers saying can I do one and I just immediately thought it it deserves a, a longer life so that's where the idea came to turn the whole thing into a book and and here here it is and there's um 50 writers in the end and we span everything from duke ellington up to lizzo in 2019 and kind of everything in between or i say everything but there are some really big omissions in there as well no bob dylan no rolling stones for example but i kind of i kind of like that but um w- one of the things um and i'll stop talking now one of the things, a lot of the contributions did so well, and, and one of the things both of yours do brilliantly is to it really evoke a particular time and place. So, David, I wonder if we could start with you. Well, well first of all, actually, when I when I asked you to choose your record, did you consider others or... Did you consider and reject others or did you instinctively turn immediately to Joni Mitchell's Blue? Well, first, I should say thank you for that uh, full and interesting answer. And when I next need a creation myth for one of my books, I know where I'm going to come because that was just great. I suppose I would also just observe how just as there's a spectrum and, and, and this feeds into an answer to your question, uh, just as there's a spectrum of music, there's also a spectrum of answers. There's a spectrum of reasons for choosing this one. There, there's such a thing as a taxonomy of beloved albums. And it was great to see um, other people's reasons for choosing their albums. Some were because it was so intricately autobiographical. Others were more perhaps artistic. Others were 
thinking of the albums as a kind of a life raft. Um, and I don't know why, but it's lovely to... It, it, there's just some um, affirming and communal to realise the obvious, that you're not the only person for whom an album, either an album you know or, or often, actually, an album you don't know, can be, can be so important, can be in your heart. So to answer your question, yes, I did think about it a while, uh, for a while, the vain part of me wanted to pick something. I wouldn't have gone for Fragile by Yes, like George Saunders. Um, I'm too vain for that. But of course, if I, inauthenticity for a project like this would also be a, a pointless exercise as well. So I sort of chose, I chose what I think of as my first album. It wasn't my first album. I had noisier, younger music, but, but I chose Joni Mitchell's Blue because it was the first time I saw an album as as an artistic statement, as as an MRI scan of the soul. I chose Blue because it did a number of things that I just didn't know an album could do. I also chose it just because life is, of course, a continuum, but we don't really think of it in terms of that. We think of life as a narrative, and narratives have chapters, they have sub-narratives, they're we impose an order upon the chaos. Uh, the order isn't there, but we need. But it's just something human beings do. And Blue by Jenny Mitchell was sort of the moment my adulthood began. Not because of any great, unique, earth-shaking experience. Those are pretty thin on the ground if you if you were growing up in Worcestershire in the early 1980s. At least they were in my house. But I bought it the day after my last A-level. And all of my childhood and those, well, up to age... 18, it had been about the A-levels. And I'm thinking about this now because my daughter's at exactly the same point. She's, uh, she's got her last leaving cert in the morning. There's, there's this sort of watershed where, OK, school, compulsory school is now officially done with you. Now what? That was the morning. That now what mo- morning was when I walked into a record shop that hasn't been there for a very long time, Counterpoint in Great Malvern, bought the cassette of the album we can see here. It had caught my eye. I didn't know much about it. Uh, this is all pre-internet. I had no way of knowing what was on it. I, you, you, you employed a sort of voodoo to choose albums in those days, unless you were more well-connected than I was. But there was something about it. There were, the, the art wasn't trying too hard. The art was crucial in those days. It really mattered. And... There was something, there's just something about this image that spoke to me. It's not trying too hard. It's, it's, it's just her face and her soul and nothing but. And I intuited that this was going to be rather different to Out of the Blue by ELO or Moving Pictures by Rush or something else I had. This was going to be different. And also the fact we have the same name. Uh, there, there was no such thing as a famous Mitchell. So, hey, someone called Mitchell had made a record. That's a good start. <laughs> These trivial little reasons, not just for choosing albums, but for more important things in life, they do actually add up and matter. So uh, I bought the cassette, I put it into my Walkman and I walked home. And, and yes, I'd never heard anything like it. It's sparseness. It was pure. It had almost nothing on it, just a guitar, an appellation at dulcimer, and I had no idea what that was, a little bit of percussion here and there, just a lick, a keyboard occasionally, river starts with a piano, and almost nothing else. I didn't have anything else like that, some bass. Then, then the lyrics. I also had never known that you could write... Well, the lyrics are important for two reasons. It's as close to poetry as lyrics 
get, certainly in my experience up to then, and actually since then as well. The rhyme she generates, it made me understand that most of the music I had in my fledgling music collection was drossily, glossily, prosaic and formula-based and tropey. She rhymed words I had simply never heard rhyme before. She put words next to each other in a sentence I had simply never... What, you put this word next to that one? Seriously? Wow! Wow, look at that! It taught me that when writing is that good, you pay attention because you don't want to miss anything. I had I had no music like that. Uh, and I think, to be fair, until she brought that out, there wasn't a lot like that as well. And also, the lyrics were important because they were about such intimate, intimate undiscussable things. I didn't know the backstory of all of the songs back then. There were no internet sites to look things up, of course. But even without knowing it, the rawness, the way that she plugs herself into the nervous system of the world in that album, she unpeels her epidermis and says, look, there's a song, Little Green, about her child, she, the real Jenny Mitchell, this isn't fiction, gave up for adoption. To turn that into a song... I didn't quite understand that was what the song was about, but somehow I knew. And I suppose these things made it a transformative listening experience for me, a transporting listening experience. And in my memory, it's, it's, it's about 35 minutes to play, so I walked home and I remember the weather. I remember, the, I remember a few of the encounters I had along the way. It, it's, it's just become a thing in my memory. So for all of these reasons, once I thought about it a little and let the dust of my vanity settle, it had to be blue by Jenny Mitchell. Whew. Uh, I think I should hand over the baton at this stage. My, my co-panellist, uh, Preeti, has, has, has an album from, appropriately enough, a different era, because she's from a different era. And I'd love to hear your reasons, if I may, uh, Preeti, for, for your choice of Midnight Marauders by A Tribe Called Quest. Wow, that was a really comprehensive encyclopedic journey through what everything that makes music amazing um, and very personal, but mm. yet some of the things you were saying just resonated so much. So thanks, I should say, for having me, Tom and David, for showing off your amazing way of thinking about this music because, you know, I, I'm pretty teenager and I, I have this relationship with language which I think which I think David really touched on as a writer and this album A Tribe Called Quests Midnight Marauders came out I think when I was quite young 14 15 and I think I discovered it in a local outprise you used to be able to go in and listen to stuff I, I grew up in a sort of suburban nowhere <laughs> like a lot of the people seem to have done in this collection yeah um and walking around that place was a really important experience of, of a kind of communion with the self. And, you know, when you are on the outside of a, of a landscape or the outside of a culture, but you sort of live in it all the time, you are looking for ways which you don't even know about to say who you are. And I think this album really helped me to realise that the poetry, the spoken word, the kind of oral storytelling tradition the kind of confidence and ecstasy of claiming your own story could be expressed in music. And I recognised that from older music that I had around me that I never heard played um, outside my home. So 
Nishrat Fakhri Ali Khan, Kazuz Gavali, and all of these things that have beats and claps and work with pauses and breath control, even down to things which I write about in the books sort of aunt, Punjabi aunties having kirtans at home, which is sort of divine way of thinking about music. And it's a very passionate and intense relationship that I had and still have with this band and this album, because it really taps into that sense that one can be ecstatic about language. And you can tell a story very confidently of your own identity. You can put in the the pleasure that you get from eating ramen noodles. It doesn't have to be about big themes. It can be about how the little things bring you into um, into a pleasure that perhaps you don't get from, you know, pie and mash at school or whatever. So <laughs> I think for me, this album is like the beginning of thinking about how you don't have to conform and I couldn't do, I couldn't, I mean, in every other way, you would never have imagined that a, a person who's sort of schooled to be good, very, very intensely at home and in the world would escape through this kind of music. But I think that's true for a lot of people. And that really is what this album did for me. So I think it has a sort of storytelling aspect to it, which was very different. And it had that kind of pleasure of the illicit of a different world different culture uh, men celebrating women of color New York the city sounds the street sounds I just thought it was New York because that was like the American city we all knew back then and how else can you learn that you don't have to be a certain way unless you are exposed to absolutely everything you can possibly get your hands on and do it without other people being part of that relationship as well So, you know, when Tom asked me to come and be part of this collection, I was reminded of those moments when you're quite young and you go into groups of people and there's a certain number of set questions people use to measure you up. And one of those questions often is, what's your favorite band? And unless you say something really obscure that nobody else has heard of, you are uncool. I am, I was, I don't know, I, I probably still am. I think I still am. The definition of uncool, but this music helps me to access something which I celebrate that duality of possibly finding out what whether or not that is possible for me um so you can bring all of these different albums into conversation with each other in this incredible book and realize that actually music provides us with a coat but it also provides us with a kind of transformative pill maybe so it's a kind of interior and an exterior experience that was uh, that was a quintessentially cool answer, and I'd like to go back and redo mine, please. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> no, there's no time, David. You can't. Um, I must. Yeah, that's. I I like that idea of both kind of having an interior and exterior quality, and um, I think I I definitely felt as a teenager and um, my my record that I don't write in the book. Well, I do write in the book a little bit, but if I had asked myself, this is probably what I would have chosen. But music, music was definitely a way to attain some authentic cool. You know, if you really loved music, then, you know, you could put that band, you know, write that band on your bag or wear that t-shirt and, and sort of wear it with pride, which is why it kind of enrages real music fans when people sort of, sell Ramones t-shirts in in Topshop and uh, because because it sort of disconnects the badge of ownership of the band between 
not that people who shop in Topshop can't love the remains, but um, I think you're right, Tom. You know, I feel like there's a kind of like falling in love that happens with this, and it's very personal and it's so intense. And you know, you, I wasn't the kind of person who walked around wearing a t-shirt because I don't know. They're just festivals, you know, uniforms and so on. But there wasn't that sense that I wanted to or could or should externalize because I didn't want other people to know that this is what I was listening to. It was very, very private relationship Mm. that I had with this kind of music and I guess I still have everything everything about this kind of music from and it's genealogy from jazz through to R&B early hip-hop and soul and funk and then into the more UK-based stuff drum and bass and London grime and all of this I mean I am I there's nothing I like more now than just turning up very loud when I'm on my own which I've just told I don't know how many people so it's not that private anymore but it's very different to the way I operate in my life and in the world. Um, but it's still something about it is completely mine. Well, it struck me that both David and Preeti, both of you, both your entries feature Walkmans, which is, um, you know, which is really interesting. And I wonder how you think that experience of listening to music, not in a communal setting, in a very private setting, you know, we're very used to it now, but so private that it's right in your ears. I wonder how you think that kind of affects our relationship with with these records. I would say it's a different experience, isn't it? Just listening to something in headphones and not. However great your speaker system is or however crappy your earphones were, and mine were crappy, when the source of the sound is in your ear canal, there's nothing else. There's nothing else but the voice. The vis- it's, 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 it's perhaps one of the few times when, for sighted people, the visual sense takes a back seat. It's all about the aural sense. And I think um, it's important because somehow you're plugged into the music in a way that you aren't, even if the speaker's four feet away, close to your table. But it's also important perhaps because artists knew this as well, and perhaps it brought about a new approach to music written, designed to be experienced through headphones. It's perhaps an instance of the... Or, or a Walkman, perhaps an instance of the technology leading the art. I don't know what you think, Pretty. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's this phrase that maybe came up after the um, Walkman, the soundtrack to your life. And when you're listening to a Walkman and walking through a city, you are creating a soundscape for your experience of your body moving in that space. And it is extremely, it just changes everything about the way you see the space. It can change everything about your mood and the way you are um, interacting with other people. And, And that becomes a kind of trope in itself, a person listening to their Walkman and everybody else is looking down, but somehow this music is that this person's listening to that no one else can hear is making them look up. And see the sky between city street uh, walls and and the silhouette of a bird standing on a rooftop or anything like that. And what is this personal experience of, of allowing yourself to shut off through sound from the rest of the world around you? It's quite that that makes that makes me think how perhaps a Walkman was a juxtaposition engine. It, it juxtaposes the aural with the visual. And it makes me think that perhaps it enabled this new thing, uh, this new quality that could enter music, which, which is motion. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, the moving picture, the moving picture that's coming in through your eyeballs. And it, it, it seems a very persuasive view indeed that, um, that 
a song off the top of my head. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen experienced through earphones or through speakers while you're stationary is a somewhat different song than it would be if you're walking along Oxford Street. Absolutely. You know, it's not called a sit down and listen man. Yeah, yeah. It's called yeah. a walkman. You're meant to have this experience of movement and music at the same time. Even though yeah. when I was listening to my Midnight Marauders cassette, I was actually under the duvet. But there was still that sense of escape into another world. And I could imagine myself um, walking around in a city I've, nev- I've never experienced. And it took another 10, 15 years for me to get there. Walkman was hugely, hugely formative. And, and for me, it was those um, bus journeys to school and sort of, staring out the window and being in a in a private space and allowing yourself to not you know I think possibly like you Pretty and David I don't know you know I was quite an introspective teenager and so the Walkman is just absolutely perfect so anyway my my the, the record that I I would have chosen probably after rejecting some potentially cooler or more obscure choices is The Bends by Radiohead and I think like David it was the sort of, although there were quite a lot of albums that came before it, it was probably the first capital A album that really spoke to me. Again, yeah, introspective, melancholic teenager. So I was very familiar with this band from their absolute sort of smash hit single, Creep, which we would all sing along to at the end of the indie disco at Guildford Civic Hall on a Thursday night or whenever it was actually it was probably a Friday night I'm not sure we were allowed out on a school night but when this record came along it sort of did something completely different in that it offered this sort of total world or total world and total worldview kind of it was really fully formed so it starts with this desolate wind that that blows through the opening track Planet Telex it has this kind of slightly science fiction feel to some of the song titles um, Black Star, like Planet Telex, as I said, and it presents this kind of bleak alternative present um, where essentially kind of capitalism has sucked the life out of everything, and you still don't get the girl. It's it's kind of it's the double it's the double whammy, um, and I suppose what I loved about it then one of the things I loved about it then was the way that it, 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 it exactly that it toggles between the 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 small scale and the epic so you have the guy sitting in the bar moping about his life and then the next line suddenly tom york singing about the fact that the planet is a gunboat in a sea of fear i mean it's actually it's quite prog david given what we were saying earlier it's de- it's definitely not afraid to kind of be be bombastic but it kind of captured that feeling that modern life was a bit soulless and a bit rubbish and all your relationships were kind of either doomed or unattainable and probably only Tom York and the rest of this band understood that as well as you did. But it was definitely a a private, you know, although I then later found people who loved this record and other records as much as I did and kind of started sharing it with them, the listening started and ended always as a kind of totally totally private experience so so that was that was that was me in the bends 
Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. You, you lined up a little bit of an open goal there, Tom. Uh, uh, what album is more cool than the Benz when you said you rejected other more cool albums? Like, I mean, um, as, uh, I, um, I may be wrong. What would I know? Well, but is this not, sir, uh, the epitome of uh, the cool album? Well, I think Preeti touched on it when she said, you know, the, the correct answer is the sort of most obscure. And, and I think it's just, too, you know, it's, I'm not, I never knock the Benz in any way at all. Um, but it became it, it became this kind of quite megalithic thing at the top of lots of lists, and um, through no fault of its own, there were I, I, through no fault of its own. No, actually, I think this is a this is a record that uh, Preeti mentioned to me when I first asked her to contribute to the book. Max and Quay by Tricky, who's a Bristolian, has a brief genre which was called brief lived genre which was called trip hop i think sort of one of those nme inventions um quite a good quite a good coinage actually but um i don't know Preeti, do you want to yeah, describe this record it's an amazing though. record isn't it it is it's absolutely, absolutely amazing. incredible and it, again this has to do with bringing home something about sound making and something about cityscapes which i hadn't heard until max and Kay in british music british music of color um and this kind of hybridity, which I love in both um, A Tribe Called Quest and in Tricky's Max and K, which, which combines different kinds of ways of thinking about sound and music, opera with beats and, you know, steel drums with violins. And I had never, I think I was going to choose Max and K. It was later for me, a bit university years. And again, I think there's a thread that runs through it of kind of getting out of your mind on Something really ecstatic, which it can represent loneliness and it can represent being solitary, but the way it weaves in all of these different sounds and cultural experiences. And this one was British. So for me, that was just like, wow, I didn't know we could do this in this country. And in that we, I think there is something so expansive about this kind of music. Um, I think Essie Edigan chose that album. She for the did, book. yeah. I was delighted that someone. Right, it. right. Yeah. And so she was in. She's in. She's Canadian, and he just, that just is a really example of how this music um, just went around the world. And I think trip hop was a great name for it. Whoever made that name, it was a trip. It was a music people tripped to in that sense. And 
how can you even begin to put your finger why should we do this Tom that's the other question I have for you like when we start to analyze these things what are we actually exposing to the light that actually that will change the story of our relationship with this music well in that you worry that if we talk about it too much it loses its kind of well it just adds another layer to the story of how we think about it like I went I went on the podcast and I talked about a tribe called Quest. And that's always going to be part of my memory of this. And it's kind of grown up with me now to write right at this moment, which is kind of nice. But as well, it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I, tri- tri- Max and Kay just go back to Tricky and that whole sound. It just felt so much closer to home. And it, I think, sort of birthed another way of thinking about music and who t- could claim space in the music industry um, mm. as well to to allow all these different voices to sit side by side with these big bands um, like Radiohead or there's something what people might think of as alternative for some people is absolutely mainstream for others and I think that's what albums like Tricky's Max and Kay and then later albums Porter's Head and um, came out of that same Bristol sound did for a lot of us. One thing that's um, like particularly interesting about hip-hop and and I know talking before you've mentioned how people are sometimes surprised that you know an academic novelist Shakespeare scholar would would would, um spend her evenings listening to to hip-hop and grime but it does it does sort of pull together high and low culturally in 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 a way that sort of might be quite surprising to people who who haven't really dipped their toe in it yeah I I think categories like high and low are really problematic and I don't think Shakespeare gave a shit about them no quite so when you can ground your authority in that then you can do what you like and I've got that streak in me that just rejects ideas of fixed identity I think that's why the work I write comes out the way it does and someone described it as giving zero Crude words I can't probably say on there. <laughs> but that's what this is, isn't it? It's about claiming something that you can say, I, you know, it, what you see on the outside of anyone isn't necessarily who they are inside. Who they are inside is a matter for them alone. And when it comes out in their work, it'll come out in all sorts of different extraordinary ways and music can allow us to think about that. So it is like what you started with, really, George Saunders, um, talking about this door that opens in the mind. Yes, Absolutely. We've got some we've got some questions lined up here now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move over to some of those. I was thinking about this actually, um, and and it kind of perhaps relates to something that Preeti was saying earlier. Um, have it, what great songs have you ruined for yourself by over listening? Which is kind of which we could expand to albums, but it, it kind of it it begs the question. Again, I, get, I suppose, why have we chosen these records, which presumably we have listened to hundreds and hundreds of times and found somehow indestructible? So I don't know. Um, David, do you want to pick up on that? Uh, I think just as you said that, a little objection in my voice said, if you can listen to it, by, if you can ruin it, if it's ruinable by over-listening, it can't be a great song. It wasn't one in the first place. I think some songs, um, it would be discourteous to name names but some sound wonderful the first time you hear uh, that, that, um, that sort of the 
sugar content is incredible. They look great. They're these irresistible cupcakes that, that uh, they've gone. And then they really have gone. And, and every, each successive listen is a case of diminishing returns. Other songs are more like slow-release fertiliser. Just a little bit comes out and, and, and it, it doesn't do much for you the first time you hear it, or maybe the first three or four times you hear it, but then you start noticing that you hear the refrain in your head, you, you, you mind-sing it. That tends to be great music, I think. So I would say, actually, um, the song is slight... Uh, at least for me, the, mm. uh, the question is somewhat predicated upon an impossibility or a paradox. You can't, you can't spoil a great song by over listening to it. I, I, I've, I've noticed I'm 52, uh, so I've been playing some pieces of music for four decades. Um, uh, they evolve over time. They they evolve with me and with the world. Uh, some sound better now than 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 I remember them sounding when they were new. Some songs have this quality. It it, it just reiterates the idea for me that um, art exists. Art is a kind of trinity. It exists in three places: the mind of its maker, the artifact that is made, and then the mind that is the recipient. That is where everything is. It's in those three places at once. That is where "Blonde on Blonde" by Bob Dylan is. It, it's in those three places. Often. Increasingly, as the years roll by, the maker of or the makers of LPs are dead. They've gone, but but and and yet the album is still in these three places. Um, music, from that point of view, I guess, can transcend mortality. Even it does. We listen to things written six hundred years ago, and they sound great. Where am I going with this? Uh, round around the houses. Over to you, pretty. I was just going to say, I think. Sometimes it's not the album song that gets first released that you end up having as your song, the one song on the album that you love more than any other song. So like for a lot of people, I mean, obviously Tribal Quest is a huge band, but a lot of people will know them from Can I Kick It, which is probably their most globally famous mainstream hit. And I can't listen to that song except in very sparing doses because it was so popular. And you know, there's so many other songs that I discovered on the album that that one was on, um, which I just became, which became more anthemic to me. So I think there is a sort of overexposure that comes in. The single, I suppose, is disco- that goes out to, re- to release an album is often the one that record executives will think will have the most popular appeal. And maybe sometimes that can, you know, you hear it so much and it's so tied to a specific moment in your life, perhaps one summer or, um, you know, break up or whatever it is that it just becomes something that you only listen to every now and then. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if, 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 if we could super jump, um, just really quickly, I, I, I find that really interesting. Uh, I, I, I'm over-reliant on metaphors, as, 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 as you can hear, but I think maybe it's inevitable when we're talking about music, which, which isn't made of words. Maybe we can only speak about it in metaphor. Maybe that's what's metaphor. Maybe that's, that's what metaphor is for, to speak about things you can't speak about in any other way. I think of it in terms of strata, geological strata i've got this big thick chunk this was a breakup song with this person and for a few years i can't um i i I have to avoid it because it brings back the pain like the song contains the pain but then years go by and other strata uh, sort of the ocean sediment sort of settles over that and i find i can start to listen to it again and 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 it and it stops hurting and and i actually value it more because the 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 hurt me is there but there's other me's there's older me's and newer me's maybe me's i like more 
uh, certainly means that might be more comfortable in their own skin, maybe more comfortable with relationships too. As for music, so for locations as well, but uh, we're here to talk about the music, so I'll stick to that. I jumped in there a little bit rudely, Tom, over to you. No, not at all. I was just going to move to another question, which I'm, I'm interested to hear both of you on. Does music help you as a writer? Do you have to have music playing? Do you need silence? So a little bit about music in your process. Yeah, we talked about this a bit, the three of us before, and it's about being in the zone. You know, it's about that moment where you create rituals to help you slide into your writing in your own way, to enter that space of imagination where you can just say, I'm here to do this and let's do it. I don't, when I first started writing seriously, you're trying to become a writer as in published, I couldn't have any distractions around me whatsoever. I didn't, I didn't, I had to have silence. It was just so important that nobody disturbed me that I was able to find a space in my house or flat, wherever I have a shared house, wherever I was living, that I could just lock the door and nothing would disturb me. Um, Even building noise was too much. But then there was always a ritual of starting where music would go on, possibly tribe called quests, other, other, other music as well. You'd like, you like your cigarette, you'd open your laptop, you'd press start, you'd sit down, you'd get your blank sheet of paper up there and you'd think into your into your moment and into whatever you were working on through the creation of those rituals and with those sounds and with the borrowed confidence that comes from um, music that says something that you, an emotion. Um, I, I think for me, writing is about capturing a core emotion in a, in a piece and just everything has to work around making that on sentence level and then paragraph and the whole thing kind of whirls around the core emotion and music um, really helped me to think my way into what that should be and how to make it work on the page I think later now I do sometimes listen to music while I write because I've become the kind of person who has to work wherever they are so I've become used to background noise but I don't necessarily need it to be music that has that same emotional connection beautifully expressed I I, I can't really improve on your answer. Um, uh, it, 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 it's, it's a matter of ritual for me too. I'm, I'm both slightly resistant to the idea of mystification that is contained in ritual because I think two things at once. A, it's not that mysterious. It's just something we do. Come on, we sort of sit down and make sentences as opposed to sit down and writing code for a computer or sitting or, or going out in the garden and doing things in the greenhouse. This is what we do. Yet, at the same time, B, uh, I also think, um, yeah, it is pretty mystical, actually, but where do these voices come from? Whose are they? How come we can evoke a metaphor from nowhere? Maybe this is... It's pretty heavy shit, really. Uh, And maybe we should... It's no harm to think of it in those terms. And yes, rituals of evocation are a part of that they may be ridiculously prosaic uh i make tea i choose a tea for my extensive tea range and i need the music i i i'm more hardcore in terms of no words than pretty i i no no voices in any language that i have the slightest bit of knowledge of then it can be vocal music other than that it's got to be uh, instrumental luckily in this day and age that hardly narrows the field down to problematic dimensions i think i'll just add one more thing as well um the idea that it is a totem connected to ritual i want something really damn good coming into my ears to remind me that there's no point in writing unless you're going to at least aspire to making your own writing as really damn good 
as the music you're hearing. I get this from other places when I'm not writing, not just because Tom is the deputy editor of The New Statesman, but I like the book reviews in The New Statesman, uh, especially book reviews, especially glowing, glow-in-the-dark effusive book reviews, because they make me more than a little bit envious. They make me think, damn, damn, there's someone up there who's really great. Uh, and I'm pleased it makes the ecosystem of my art form richer. And I'm glad it's that. And I'm also pleased because it's this little, little reminder in the corner of my mind to up your game and to keep it up. That's also what music is for uh, when I write. Yeah, I feel like what you're talking about for me is like not just to do with envy, but that sense of wonder that, oh, that can be done. And somebody has done it. And I get that sometimes from looking at paintings um, you can get it from listening to really amazing music that speaks to you in a particular way or from reading someone else's book. And it's just that sense that, oh my goodness, you know, wow, that is incredible. And so sometimes it's like, can I do that in my own way? I'm going to have a go, even if it's not the same, because it's not about mimicking that. It's about finding a way to your own voice through appreciating that. That's both true uh, and a response from a purer and more enlightened person than myself. <laughs> I hardly think that's right. <laughs> There's a couple of questions here about, I guess, for me really, about um, putting putting together the book. Did you discover a lot of music that was unfamiliar to you in writing this book? And what was the album choice that su- surprised you the most? Most of Most of the music... Most of the choices that came in were things I was at least aware of. Many of them uh, were records that I really loved. This loops back to what Preeti and I were talking about earlier, but there, there were definitely a couple of there were a couple of delightful surprises. For example, Essie Edijan, a Canadian novelist whose work I really love, but I would have had no kind of clue that she would have picked this like very sort of strange esoteric bristolian trip hop style from the from the mid 90s likewise um other hip-hop records that i i loved growing up by um cypress hill and this west coast american west coast rapper warren g who coined who sort of was at the forefront of this school brilliant school of rap called g-funk whose whose motto was rhythm is life and life is rhythm but I, I I love this record. I hadn't listened to it for years. And and this young poet Will Harris, who like is is quite a bit bit younger than me. I don't know how he picked this up, but he chose that. So those were all delightful surprises. And then I I guess the album that I really discovered through this book was uh, there's an American uh, poet, um, memoirist, and now novelist called Patricia Lockwood, and and critic actually. She sort of can do everything. She's she's kind of amazing who wrote about a, a band called This Mortal Coil, who is a sort of Scottish collective uh, who came out of uh, a record label called 4AD. And I'd know, to my shame, I'd never come across them. And I just encourage you all to, if you haven't uh, listened to them, to go away and, and look them up. Well, we've got a, there's a playlist of songs from the album, and I think um, Intelligence Squared are going to post another playlist of songs we talk about here so that's got a double chance of getting up getting on the playlist now but very very sparse very strange elizabeth fraser who sang in the cocteau twins 
is the singer and her voice does some incredible things. I think Patricia Lockwood describes sort of listening to this in, in the Midwest of America. And after the song finishes, she tries to sort of mimic it. She sort of try, says, I experimentally hooted like a crystal owl. So that was the, that was the kind of a lovely uh, discovery for me was, was this mortal coil. I don't know whether David and Pretty dipping into it, whether there are any records in there that you've, um, you've kind of been inspired to, to look up or, or old favourites that have, you've kind of returned to. I think you mentioned um, Warren G, like obviously that's in the genre that I know. So as soon as you say Warren G, I have lyrics in my head. Mm. And that's really nice to see other people who you may have met um, briefly at festivals or whatever, you've read their work and you think they're great pick music that you also love and obviously Max and Kay Cypress Hill someone picked Cypress Hill I thought that was a little surprising um I can't remember who it was but that would have been another one for me there are obviously some some musics that I haven't heard of but otherwise it's a sort of you know a way of kind of putting sounds to names in a way because obviously you can't see the people but you can hear what they like I have to say I'm looking flipping through it now as you can see and I'm looking at Emma McBride's um, entry Tinder Sticks I'm sure I would know it if I heard it but it doesn't ring any bells so maybe I'll revisit that a part of getting older and the process of kind of turning into your parents is and, and you always swore that, she, that you would never be this kind of somewhat older person <laughs> but she kind of it, it creeps up on you you grow a slight prejudice in favour of music that was that, 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 that furnished your world when you were in your 20s and 30s to mid-30s. Uh, and as the years creep by, you form a slight prejudice against music's, music that's happened since. You know you shouldn't, you know it's not healthy, yet the default mode is for this to happen. You know more about the music. Your, your, your knowledge was and remains more encyclopaedic about the music you grew up, grew up with and which filled the world when your generation was at the centre stage of the world. This is, this is a, an impulse to be resisted. It's no good at all. Uh, it means you'll miss some great stuff made by people young enough to be your kids as you get older. And you mustn't do that. It, it, it's a form of um, artistic self-harm. And I love the book because... It's it, it's 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 an antidote to this um, old geezer syndrome, um, <laughs> whereby you 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 just you're just less attentive to more recent music. Having a teenager in the house is is, is also a great antidote to this, and, and and I'm very grateful to my daughter and son for the music they bring into my life, which I would just I'd, I'd be oblivious to. I know, I know I would, but. Uh, Fading that, in the meantime, you've got Long Players, edited by Tom Gatti. Very good, and I think that will probably go straight on the playlist as well. Sadly, we're, we're just about out of time, which is which is a, a shame, because I could stay and um, chat to you, David and Pretty, for much, much longer, double albums worth at least. So thank you, everyone, for, for coming and listening to us. Thank you so much, David and Pretty, for your time. I thoroughly recommend... David and Preeti's books, Preeti's novel, We That Are Young, and David Mitchell's most recent novel, which we didn't get to talk about, but perhaps we will another time, Utopia Avenue, very 
relevant to our conversation about rock music in the late 60s. So yes, thank you to Intelligence Square for, for hosting us. Do check out the playlists afterwards for some of the music we've been talking about. And I hope you're um, curious enough to maybe seek out a copy of the book. So thanks so much.